Hey guys, welcome to the third installment of In Bed with Skylar. If you missed me last week, I'm sorry. I was out of town all weekend and Sundays is when I get, I mean, basically the whole weekend is when I get this podcast done. Um, my research, my recording, my editing. Sorry guys, but it just wasn't going to happen. And to my couple of friends that reached out and said, I missed your podcast this week. I'm sorry, but I'm back this week. Um, You know, shit happens. But today, oh, I don't know about you guys, but I get very invested to true crime cases. Like, I will lay in bed at night. Dakota will be snoring up a storm. And I'm going to be on my phone, on YouTube, on Google, whatever, just digging for more information on all of, Whatever case it is that I am just fascinated in. Um, But my, like, favorite true crime case has to be the Elizabeth Smart case. And if you're not familiar with it, well, you're going to get familiar with it today. Um, I am just absolutely obsessed with this case. And I think it's because she is a survivor and we have so much information from her side, from police, from her family... There is so much information on this case, and I just, I can't do this case justice on a one podcast episode. It's just not going to happen. So, this is going to be a two-parter, but I really dug into this case, and I am telling it in a more of a chronological order. I've watched many videos, read many different things where it's just like one perspective, and I'm kind of trying my best to combine all perspectives, but I really want to focus on Elizabeth's perspective of this. Um, If you guys don't know this case, it is so freaking fascinating, and I am really excited to get into this, so let's just get right into it. Trigger warning, the following mentioned subjects such as substance abuse, mental health, sexual assault, and child molestation. Viewer discretion is advised. Alright guys, just to set the scene, um, this takes place in Salt Lake City, Utah in June of 2002. Um, Elizabeth Smart she was 14 years old at the time. Um, she she was a harp player, and she was really good at this. She was like a prodigy harp player. Um, her family was very conservative and very religious. They were part of the LDS church. Um, and if you don't know what the LDS is, it's Latter-day Saints, um, which most people refer, refer to as Mormon. But recently, I've been told there's a difference. So take with that as you will. Um But Elizabeth, she was very sheltered, and I mean, I hope you got that just from the fact that her family was very conservative and religious. She had really just this fairy tale point of view. She was very naive. She didn't think, she never even thought of, like, bad things happening, bad things happening to her. Um, She was just, she had that that happily ever after mindset. She, her destiny was to grow up, you know, obey her parents 
And then one day she was going to meet the man of her dreams, get married, have kids, live happily ever after. So she was just, to give you guys an idea, she was very, very naive. Um, If you guys didn't know, the Winter Olympics were held in February 2002 in Salt Lake City. So there was just a lot of hustle and bustle going around in that area at that time. Um, And right around that same time, her grandfather was actually diagnosed with cancer. He had a brain tumor. Um, And his funeral, he, he eventually passed away. But his funeral actually happened the day before Elizabeth was kidnapped. Um, So the day before Elizabeth was kidnapped, um, mom was cooking in the kitchen, obviously. Um, And then she ended up opening a window because she accidentally burnt some potatoes in the oven. Um, And mom, Elizabeth, Mary Catherine, everyone was scrambling trying to get to school that night because they had their end of the year award ceremony, you know, and Elizabeth's principal, Elizabeth's principal actually called Elizabeth directly and asked her to play the harp for this award ceremony. So it was a really big deal. And that kind of shows you how hard she worked with the harp and (laughs) how hard she practiced. And She was also going to receive a couple of awards, so she was a really good student. She was, I mean, exactly what I said before. Um, So that night of June 5th, 2002, she was woken up in the middle of the night. Um, And if you guys aren't familiar with this case, she was woken up by a man named Brian Mitchell. And since Elizabeth is a survivor, we're going to let her help us tell this story today. The next thing I remember was being awakened in the middle of the night and it was still dark and at first I heard this voice and when I first heard it I thought it had to be part of a dream. Then I heard it again, this time as the voice spoke. I not only heard it, but I opened my eyes. Standing above me was this dark shadow of a man. And I remember him saying, I have a knife at your neck. Don't make a sound. Get up and come with me. And that second time that I heard this voice, I mean, I was instantly awake. I could feel the knife at my neck. What if I don't do what he says? He might take my sister. He might hurt my sister. I have to go. And she got up out of bed and we went into the bathroom in the closet. Going in to get a pair of shoes meant that we were going outside. We were going somewhere other than my home. I was asking him why he was doing this when he said, I'm taking you hostage for ransom. And they go out the hallway and we had some squeaks on the floor so you could kind of tell where they were. As he was taking me out through my house, he whispered to me, if you scream, if you yell, like, I'll kill your family or I'll kill you. And really, at that point, I thought maybe he already had killed some of my family. It seemed like either do what he says and go with him or have your neck cut open and die. I could hear the grandfather clock ticking from downstairs. Dad, please wake up. I was praying in my mind, 
Mom, can you hear me? Please wake up and save me. He just led me down the stairs and he still had his knife on me. So Elizabeth and her younger sister, Mary Catherine, um, Mary Catherine was only nine years old at this time. And if you can imagine as a nine-year-old, she was just so fucking stunned in fear. She was just frozen and she tried so hard for so long to work up the courage to go tell her parents that, you know, Elizabeth was go- is gone. Elizabeth was taken. And the first time that she got up, she actually made it to the door and then basically freaked out, which I would too. I don't blame her at all. And just ran back to her bed and went under her covers. So Brian continues to, you know, hold Elizabeth by knife point at the neck. I don't know if that's the right term, but he had a knife at her neck this whole time. And they eventually came up to the road um, and they saw head or he saw headlights. I assume she saw him too, but they saw headlights from a car driving by and they were hiding in like a bush in the brush, whatever you want to call it. And Elizabeth hears him say, God, if this work is true, let this car pass. And she said that he whispered it. And at this moment, she's just thinking like, God, you're, how are you doing this? But you're talking to God. Like, how is this even related? Which I completely understand her point of view. We kept going. And that scared me because why else was he taking me? And he said something about, I was his hostage. He was taking me for hostage. And I remember saying, telling him that my parents would pay anything to get me back. I mean, they didn't have like millions and millions of dollars, but if that's what he wanted. I knew they'd get it. I knew they'd do whatever it took to get me back. And we got farther and farther. And I stopped him again. And I said, well, don't you realize what you're doing? I mean, if you get caught, you'll spend the rest of your life in prison. But I promise you, if you let me go, my family won't press charges. And he smiled that same just awful smile. He told me, I know exactly what I'm doing. And I know what the consequences are. The only difference is I'm not going to get caught. I remember being scared that maybe, maybe a way had been provided and, and I'd missed it. And that scared me. And he was still right there and he still had his knife. And I, and I remember looking at bushes and thinking, if I ran and jumped behind that bush, would he find me? I remember just being in this panic and this fear that maybe I'd lost my opportunity, but there wasn't realistically an opportunity for me to escape. He always made sure he was below me so that I couldn't run back down the mountain. And it was such thick scrub oak that running up the mountain really wasn't an option either. So at this point, Mary Catherine, her nine-year-old sister, who she shared a room with, finally worked up the courage and went and told her parents, Elizabeth's gone. Elizabeth's been taken. And so, of course, they're like half asleep when they hear this, but... I'm sure it woke them right up and they like got out of bed really quick and turned on the lights looking around the house. Um, 
and mom saw the window in the kitchen that she had left open. Remember that window? Um, and she saw that the screen had been cut out. Um, so they immediately called 911. Tell them, them, that Elizabeth is gone. I mean, what else do they tell them? Um, and of course they called all their friends and family for help, which, I mean, I, I can't blame them there. Um, but this is really what kind of just killed the case. Very similar to the John Bonet case, if you're familiar with that. Um, all their friends and family came to the house. They were helping search. They were just coming and going from the house. And this just completely contaminated the crime scene. And it was just a hot mess. There was no log of people coming and going. Um, so eventually the police, they had to ID and fingerprint everyone. I had on bright red pajamas. The sun was coming up, so it was getting light. And red is a pretty noticeable color. And he was becoming more and more anxious. I remember him saying, oh, he's like, we've got to run across the top of this mountain because you're like a flame. You're like a bright red flame on the top of the mountain. And I don't want any early morning runners seeing you in your lovely pajamas or how lovely you look in your pajamas. Something pretty creepy. So at this point, it basically dawned on Elizabeth who this man was that was taking her um, back going a couple of months back. Her and her mom were out shopping you know, for back to school, and they saw Brian, and they went over, or Elizabeth went to her mom and said, this guy needs some work, he needs some help, like, we gotta help him, mom, um, and he was clean shaven at the time, which apparently that makes a significance, which I guess it kind of does, but I, he was clean shaven, let's just go with that, um, mom gave him five dollars, and they ended up giving him work to do on the house. Um, they had many different handymen, electricians, plumbers. I mean, you name it. They had a lot of them coming in and out. I believe, if I'm remembering right, they were working on like renovations of the house. So, of course, they had plenty of people coming and going. Um, but Brian even stated that he knew at that moment that she, Elizabeth, was who he was going to kidnap. Um, and he scoped out the house, the house, the house. He scoped out the house several times before doing this. So he was familiar with the house. He had worked on the house. Like he knew what he was doing. He knew where Elizabeth's room was. He knew the right route to get in and out. Like this dude's pretty insane. So as Elizabeth and Brian are making their way up this mountain, Elizabeth, of course, is so confused and she's asking questions like, why are you taking me? Why are you kidnapping me? Are you going to kill me? Are you going to rape me? Like, she has no clue what's going on. And Brian just says to her, you'll find out in due time. Um, Brian eventually discloses to Elizabeth that his wife, who we know as Wanda Barzi, is at the top of the mountain waiting for them. Um, and at this time, Elizabeth is thinking, maybe they're not going to rape and murder me. Maybe they couldn't have kids and they kidnapped me, you know, so that they can have a kid of their own. Um, they eventually make it up to, um, the top of the mountain 
and Brian says, Hepzibah! And then she hears this voice scream back, Emmanuel! Which, these are basically the names they gave themselves. Um, don't ask me why, but um, if moving forward, if you hear Elizabeth talk about Emmanuel, Hepzibah, those are the names that Brian and Wanda went by. Um, and to clarify, Brian was Emmanuel and Wanda was Hepzibah. Once we got inside the trees, I saw a tent set up. But I think really the most memorable thing about this whole camp was the woman. She looks scary. She is a scary witch. Stay away from her. She started hugging me. But it wasn't like a comforting, nice hug. It was like she was trying to tell me that if I ever did anything that she didn't want me to do, I'd be sorry. If you can convey all that in a hug, that's what she was trying to convey. She led me inside the tent and she sat me down on this upturned bucket. I just remember being so terrified. She started washing my feet and then she started to try to undress me. Well, I was really shy as a 14 year old. And I remember begging and pleading with her, telling her I'd showered last night, that I wasn't dirty, that I wasn't gonna take my pajamas off. She finally just said, fine, okay, put this robe on. I pulled it on over my head. And then I took my pajamas off underneath because she had told me that if, that if I didn't let her do it, um, then she would have Emmanuel come in and he'd rip my clothes off me. And I took my pajamas off, but I didn't take my underwear off. And she threatened me yet again that if I didn't do it, she'd have Emmanuel come in and he'd rip my underwear off. So I remember wiggling out of my underwear and then she got up and left me alone in the tent. I just remember feeling like I had just sunken into complete hopelessness, despair. I just remember being so confused and feeling so scared and just so overwhelmed. So back at home, police were gathering information on literally the entire family and friends. Um, if you guys are familiar with true crime cases this is the first thing that they got to do you got to clear basically all the close family and friends um and they interviewed every single family member of mary catherine's um and they intensely interviewed um mary catherine which she was nine years old she was ter terrified out of her mind of course she didn't have any information she was probably, you know, like, trying so hard to keep her eyes shut, just thinking, this is a dream, this is a dream, someone's taking my sister, this is a dream. Um, but they didn't really get any information out of her. Um, they were using cadaver dogs to search the house, and at this point, it had been 24 hours, and the police were telling them that most likely she was dead. The tent door unzipped and in came Emmanuel, Brian Mitchell. And he knelt down next to me and he started to speak and I just, 
I remember saying, no, just go away. I just leave me alone. I calmed down enough to hear the last sentence. He told me that I was now sealed to him as his wife before God and his angels as, as his witnesses and that that could never be undone. I just remember being filled with horror. I remember just screaming out, no. He looked at me and he said, if you ever scream out like that again, I will kill you. Over and over, he said, it's time for us to consummate our marriage now. And I remember thinking, wait a second. Does, does he mean what I think he means? No, no. I tried to go over all the reasons why this couldn't be legal or binding, why this wasn't okay. I was 14 years old. Did he realize that? I told him I hadn't even started my period yet. And that stopped him for about half a second, long enough for him to yell out, Hepzibah, is it okay that she hasn't started her period yet? This woman, Hepzibah, Wandabar Z, she yelled back, it's fine. No matter how much begging or pleading or crying I did, it just didn't make a difference to him. He physically grabbed me and forced me down onto the ground. I thought you had to face each other to have sex. And so I thought if I rolled over onto my stomach and I crossed my legs, and I remember holding, holding my arms up just right under my chest so he couldn't touch me, crossing my legs as hard as I could, rolling on my stomach, he, he wouldn't be able to. He wouldn't be able to rape me. Well, I was terribly mistaken. I remember he just pulled up the robe and raped me. And I was devastated and I remember just thinking how on earth did this happen to me? Why did this happen to me? And I, at that point he got up and he kind of smiled and walked out of the tent, left me alone in the tent. I just remember lying on the ground just feeling so shattered, feeling like I truly was broken, feeling like there was no coming back from this, that it would be better if I were dead. So eventually Mary, oh fuck, I keep doing that. So eventually Elizabeth wakes up in the tent and when she woke up, she didn't open her eyes immediately because she was terrified that Brian was still there. Um, she eventually opened her eyes, and yes, he was still there. Um, and she looked down on her ankle and saw that she had a metal cable tied around her ankle. 
And Brian's response was, this is just in case. It's to remove temptation. And at this point, she realized she wasn't there to get killed. She was more of a possession. Um, And at this point also, she was wondering, how long is this going to last? How long am I going to be a prisoner to this man? So back at home, we if you're kind of lost, we are on the next day. So the day after she was kidnapped. Um, her family, her friends, even complete strangers, they all volunteered and helped for searching for her. Um, they were really working on getting her story out there in the news, newspapers, flyers, posters. And you also have to remember, this is 2002. I mean, we had internet, but internet wasn't used like it's used today. So, like, I'm sure there were some news articles, but, like, we weren't, you know, we weren't retweeting, help find Elizabeth. We weren't sharing on Facebook, missing Elizabeth Smart. Like, there may have been some news articles, but we we weren't retweeting. We weren't sharing on Facebook. We weren't posting on Instagram. They really relied on the news, newspapers, flyers, articles, and... That's about it. Posters. Um, But eventually, the Shriners Hospital in Salt Lake City, and my grandfather was a Shriner, so this really made me happy. Um, They helped initiate a search, and they had just a shit ton of people in Salt Lake City looking for her. That first day... um... I, I remember crying so much and Barzi's looking at me and being like, oh, you should be happy. It's your wedding day. She's like, but if you're going to, if you're going to cry, then take today to cry because you can't cry anymore after. That didn't really happen though. I cried for a long time afterwards. Even though I've been raped, I was still very protective over my body and I remember just begging him to leave me alone to not touch me ever again and he's and he'd say things like well we're man and wife that's what man and wife do they have sex and it's important that you engage in all parts of a relationship between man and wife and I remember just begging and begging and telling him just I do whatever he wanted just not that he went ahead and raped me yet again and there was just nothing I could do about it I mean I couldn't run away I couldn't fight him off I'd already tried he was bigger he was stronger there's just nothing that I could do until it was done he was the master I was the slave that was the real lesson of the day so back at home I'm sure you can imagine her parents especially her parents and some of her family, but especially her parents. They could not sleep. Um, Eventually, both of her parents were like, okay, we need to have someone that's in charge of the kids, the family, the household, you know, making sure everything's still running at home. And then the other person is in charge of making sure that the story was out there. So mom took on the household and dad took on keeping her story alive, keeping Elizabeth out in the media so that people don't stop looking for her so that she doesn't get brushed under the rug. Um, Eventually, Dad ended up having just a mental break. And 
Elizabeth's grandfather, which was her dad's dad, eventually admitted him into a mental hospital and he was being sedated. He was being put on drugs. Like he was just, I don't want to say he was a basket case, but like the documentary, one of the documentaries that I watched, he was like, he literally said I was a basket case. Um, he eventually went home and when he went home, he was like, I, I just have to be there for my family. Um, he's still, I mean, the entire family, they still worked on keeping Elizabeth's story out there so that people continue to search, but he could not dedicate his entire life, I guess you could say, which I'm sure that's all he wanted to do at that time, but he had to take a step back and be there for his family as well. It was probably the third day that I that I was held captive. We were sitting and he was talking and talking and talking as usual. And he stopped talking for a minute. And all of a sudden, I remember hearing my name being yelled. I felt like I recognized the voice. I felt like it was a familiar voice. I felt it was like the voice of my uncle Dave. Um, I mean, it just sounded like someone I know, and maybe it wasn't, but but I felt like it was. And then I heard my name being called again. And I remember being so excited, thinking they're gonna find me, they're gonna find me, that it's gonna be okay. When he said that he'd kill me and he'd kill anyone who came into the camp, I knew I wasn't gonna scream out. But I couldn't stop hoping and then and then I didn't hear the voice again. And and I didn't hear a voice ever again after that. And that was pretty disheartening for me because they were so close. I mean I could hear them. And then I never heard them again. So if you guys haven't caught on by that clip, um, that was literally the search party looking for Elizabeth. Like they were right there and she couldn't do anything. And uh, this is what frustrates me the most is she was just so brain brainwashed. I don't even think brainwashed was the word. She knew that this was wrong. She just was terrified. Um, but moving on back at home, one morning, her uncle came to the house, um, first thing in the morning and he noticed that there was a police officer there and he went upstairs, um, to her parent, to her parents' bedroom and just saw Elizabeth's mom just staring out the window, just looking completely hopeless. Um, and eventually her uncle said like, you got to come to the search center there and, so they went, they went to the search center and they were just so overwhelmed by all the people there helping to look for her. There were over 10,000 people that helped look, search, anything that they could do for Elizabeth. They used bloodhounds, helicopters, search parties. And like Elizabeth was saying, there was a helicopter right over the camp and the tarp was shaking the trees were blowing, the tent was blown down, and she was just waiting to be rescued. But if you guys know the story, that's not how it happened. 
All right, so June 13th, this is eight days after Elizabeth was kidnapped. Um, the police took 12 computers from the family's home. Um, and at this moment, the police are thinking that this is an inside job. It had to have been a family member, a close family member, close friend, someone that knew the layout of the house and the best route in and out. Just, I understand where they're coming from. Um, and I wasn't able to figure out exactly who, but one of the family members did not pass the polygraph. But if you know anything about polygraphs, this isn't the greatest source. I mean, most of the family wasn't sleeping and duh, they're not going to pass a polygraph when they haven't been sleeping. And if, like I said, if you know anything about polygraphs, true crime, you can pass and you can fail, but it doesn't give you, you know, that 100% evidence. Um, so, I mean, at this point, the the police turned on the family. They were really convinced that it had to have been a close family member. And a little FYI, because I failed to mention this, they didn't find anything with the family, even though they turned on them. And, and as we all know, it wasn't a family member. The first time he ever brought alcohol back to the camp, I abstained for religious reasons but he'd say you know christ sunk below all things you know he was out among the sinners he was blessing them do you think you're better than he is i kept refusing and kept refusing he said well i'm not gonna let you sleep either i'm not gonna have water you can't have any of this food until you drink this wine and i just had this tiny little sip and he said no you have to drink the whole cup and then he poured another cup he said okay now you have to drink this one as well and so that's what he'd do. He'd have me drink and then he'd rape me. I was there for him to do whatever he wanted to do. So back in home at this point, the police had no leads whatsoever. And then they started to investigate all of those workers that the smarts had had working on the house, had been in and out of the house. Um, and nine days after... Elizabeth's kidnapping, Richard Reese, um, was arrested and he was a handyman who was familiar with the kids and the house. Um, he had a long history of substance abuse and he was in and out of jail. And one of the documentaries that I watched actually said, I think it was one of the police. Um, they said that this man had spent more time in prison than, a free man. Um, he was arrested on a parole violation. Um, he was described as very dangerous, which, so I don't know what the terms of his parole was, but it's kind of funny to me that he was arrested for drinking a beer. Um, but he also had a history of stealing from the home and he did this a couple of times. Um, and let's have Elizabeth tell us some more. In the first weeks of my enslavement, my captivity, there wasn't anything for me to do except having to sit there and listen to Mitchell talk nonstop 
about how he was going to go out and kidnap seven young girls and we'd all be his wives and we'd all come to accept him and love him. And I just would remember thinking, what the hell are you thinking? There's no way I'll ever think that way about you. Do you, do you have any idea how much you've taken from me? Do you have any idea what you've done to me? So four weeks after Elizabeth was kidnapped, um, the police decided to search and seize four bags of potential evidence from Richard's home. Um, he took a polygraph test and he passed. And he even had an alibi. His wife said, that he was at home sleeping right next to her the entire night that Elizabeth disappeared. They had absolutely no evidence towards Richard. And, I mean, this this is what gets me. He lied about a lot of things. And so police, I mean, what? why are you lying? What do you have to hide? Um, and eventually Mary Catherine then told her family and the police like "Mm, that's not him which we all know that but at the time they didn't from the beginning my captors told me that i wasn't going to be allowed to speak about my family my parents my siblings my my life prior to the moment that he kidnapped me he spoke about where his mother lived As he spoke about that area, I recognized it and realized that that's where my cousin lived. And and I naively said, oh, my cousin, like my best friend, she just lives like a block away from your mom. And like this was the first time that Mitchell didn't get mad at me about speaking about my family. A couple days later, he comes and he's like, oh, I received revelation and you're not going to like it. The Lord has commanded me to go forth and plunder your cousin Olivia to be wife number two. And I just, I felt like I'd betrayed my family. And I remember the day came and as he got ready, he pulled out the knife that he had kidnapped me with and he held it up to me and he said, do you recognize this? And then he left. So Elizabeth kind of led us into this next part. Um, It was seven weeks since Elizabeth had originally been kidnapped. um, And her her cousin, my bad, her cousin Olivia, um, she woke up to basically all the lights on in the house and just all of this commotion and chaos. And she went downstairs and her dad was on the phone with the police telling them that someone tried to break in and that they were related to Elizabeth Smart. Um, the back window had, the screen had been cut, um, and they tried to, he, we know this is Brian, he tried to get in, um, but there were picture frames in front of the window, and the picture frames got knocked when he tried to, you know, open the window, and this scared Olivia's sister awake, and I'm assuming this is when Brian fled, um, But if you guys remember, this is literally how Brian got into the Smarts house. Um, And what's kind of 
not funny, but like interesting, is that recently Olivia and her sister swapped rooms. So Brian's thinking that Olivia was in her old room that's now her sister's room. And so, I mean, if he would have been successful, he would have kidnapped Olivia's sister, not actually Olivia. Um, but all of the kids slept in their parents' room on the floor ever since Elizabeth had been kidnapped. Um, and this was one of the first nights that Olivia's sister was back in her bedroom. Um, police brushed this off as a copycat, but the family was like, this is not a coincidence. Um, and this was kind of a turning point for them. And we'll get into that in like a couple seconds, but there was no evidence left at the scene. And if you're, if you guys are remembering Richard, who the police thought did it, he was in jail. So it wasn't Richard. Um, this, but like I said, this was a huge turning point for the family. And this is when they started thinking, that Elizabeth's not dead. She's alive. And this really gave the family hope. And they searched even harder after this. I spent more than six weeks tethered to the trees. Six weeks having a steel cable wrapped around my ankle. Six weeks of never moving more than a few feet beyond the center of the camp. Mitchell and Barzi had had a huge fight. She was mad that we'd been left alone, that he was able to eat and drink, and then we were left up there with nothing. She just said that she wasn't going to stay up in camp any longer. He wasn't going to leave me at camp, even though there would have been no way for me to get through a metal cable. He's like, well, you're going to have to wear a veil, and you can't speak. And if you say anything, if you do anything... I'll kill you. I'll kill your family. As we were headed down, I was actually really surprised at how far away we actually were from Salt Lake, how far of a hike it really was. People that passed us, they looked away really quick. They just pretended like they didn't see us. And I remember thinking, why aren't you looking at me? We started making regular trips down to Salt Lake. Even though... The places we went to were places I'd driven by or gone inside before. It still didn't feel like it was my world. One of the grocery stores that we went into, the cashier, he was like, oh, there's a big party tonight. And I remember we headed over to this party and I'd never been to a party like this before. All right, so we are 11 weeks from when Elizabeth was originally kidnapped. Um, and like Elizabeth said, they went to this house party in Salt Lake City. And I guess at this time, Salt Lake City was very just like, I don't know. I don't want to say, I guess they were diverse, but like people didn't really say much about things. It was either you're Mormon or you're not. Um, and this was like a lot of is 
performing arts, theatrical people. So, like, if you know anything about those kind of people, they're very extravagant. They creative is a good word for it. Um, but Elizabeth, Wanda, and Brian, they they stood out, but they really didn't stand out. Um, and there was a lot of different people there. And this was a party. Like, there were literally fire dancers in the backyard. This next clip that I'm going to share with you guys, um, it's a couple of witnesses talking, as well as Elizabeth, um, about this party and their interactions. And I think it's really important to share this. We were in the backyard watching the fire spinners and these three people walked in through the back. I remember just being there with Mitchell and Barzi and being just as scared of the people that I was surrounded by as I was of my captors. And the man was really aggressive right from the beginning. He immediately was someone who drew all the attention to him and, and had to be managed. He bummed a beer and I turned them on to my uh, bootleg homemade absinthe. He carried the glass jar around and he kept taking big drinks of it and he eventually Someone else was like, hey, you're drinking it all. So they took it away from him. He was starting to get more and more agitated while being more and more obnoxious. I said, get the prophet the hell out of the house. The punks were on his ass. This other woman just came up and grabbed him and said, you need to leave right now. Uh, Elizabeth didn't say anything. She was just quiet. I do recall telling her specifically to ditch David. I'm like, this guy's an ass. Get away. He, he is, he's trouble. Elizabeth just seemed scared and lost. I felt bad for her, but I didn't feel it was my position to, uh, to do anything but advise her to leave. I would apologize to her if I saw her, that I, that I didn't recognize the page she was in, that I didn't take action. I started to wonder, will I ever be rescued? Maybe I don't. And maybe I die. All right, guys, that's all I have for you today. Sorry to leave you on a cliffhanger, but this story is just, there's so many details. There's so much information. There's so many different point of views that, like I said at the beginning, I want to do it justice. So we are doing two parts for this, but come back next week if you want to hear the rest. Um, if you guys were trying to listen on Apple Podcasts, I fucked up. It should be there by now. Um, <laughs> it's actually kind of funny. I accidentally put the title of my podcast on Apple Podcast as the title of the first episode. And so if you typed in the first episode title, yeah, you found it. Um, but if you searched In Bed with Skylar, you weren't finding it. But I believe I fixed it. If not, someone please let me know. Um you can listen to In Bed with Skylar on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and the Anchor app. 
Um, if there's any other podcast apps that you guys would like me to have my podcast on, let me know. Um, please leave a review on whatever app you are listening to. Subscribe. Give me some likes. Whatever it is on the app that you listen to. Um, and we will be back next week. Thank you, guys.